right on the head when you described it as a diagram. Because that's what it is. It's not a work of art. There's no artistry in it, really. It's my way, a personal way I have developed of remembering. And once I've drawn something, it's etched into my memory in such a way that I can call it up in every little detail. But you don't realise when you're looking at a painting, you're often just sort of broad scan, taking the subject matter, taking a bit of that, and you think, well, what was he actually wearing? You know, and you haven't really thought, you haven't really seen every bit of it. And this was really precipitated by my impending scare about my eyesight. I've got a melanoma on this eye, which blinded it completely. But then, I got macular degeneration in this eye. And uh, I now have to have those terrible um, licentious injections. It's like a medieval torture. Every six weeks I have a needle stuck into my eye. That literally work. It's work. So anything's worth it. But when I wondered about my eyesight, and I began to think, I thought about some of the paintings that had really been influential in my life from when I was a student in London. And I thought, do I know them well enough? And I thought, you know, I don't think I do. So in 2006 it was, I took a last journey back to London. I couldn't go to Paris, I couldn't go to New York, I just went to London and Madrid, those two, because I really wanted to check out Velasquez, Las Meninas, because I really wanted to find out something about that. But the main thing was, interestingly enough, were the Rembrandt self-portraits. Because when I was a girl, I was, there was something about Rembrandt that really just spoke to me directly. It's a little bit like Shakespeare, I think. You know how Shakespeare can his finger on so much basic human characteristics, whether it's sort of hatred or love or jealousy or anger or whatever it is, he's able to sort of, and they're the enduring things. They were as real today as they were in the 17th century. And that I feel with Rembrandt. I think with Rembrandt he just could touch on those sort of aspects of humanity. But all I'd seen as a schoolgirl, I'm talking about 1930s now, was rather overinked reproductions in William Orpen's Outline of Art. And I knew that that was not what I should be looking at. So when I finished school at 17, I took a bus down to Melbourne because I knew there was a self-portrait in Melbourne. And I really wanted to see it. And I remember as a 17-year-old standing in front of this little self-portraits about that big and I had tears running down my face I thought I'm looking into the eyes of the great man himself and this is him but the amusing thing is that the Rembrandt Review Committee have crossed the panel off the list <laughs> and I was talking to uh, Ernst Van Bettering who is on the Rembrandt 
of <coughs> Claudius Sibyllus, who was the um, hero of the Batavians. He was the one who organized a resistance against Roman takeover of um, the lowlands. And Claudius Sibyllus was, had become a great sort of hero of the Dutch in the 17th century. Evidently, though, he'd had, it lost an eye. <laughs> and it really lost an eye, not unlike me. It was a great hole there, you know, just sort of, uh, it must have been probably in a battle. And Gerbert Flink had drawn, he'd drawn up all these four things, and he showed Claudius Civilis seated at the table in, because he swore an oath with the um, Batavians, the, of, you know, resistance against the Romans. And, and Flink very decorously turned his head so that he was in profile, so he didn't see that great blind eye. And they're sealing the deal with a gentlemanly handshake in a nice little table in the wood. Now, when Rembrandt got the full death conviction, this was his great moment. What he really wanted to do was to be a great history painter. Paint big, large paintings, civic paintings. And so he was absolutely thrilled to get this commission. But of course, he was so much more robust than Robert Flink. He had uh, Claudius Civilis sitting at the table, facing straight at that great blind eye, like <laughs> a big badge of courage of a brigand in the forest. And they're sealing their oath with a clash of swords. I don't know if you know the painting, it's in Stockholm. It's a marvellous painting, absolutely marvellous. Now we know that it was in place in the town hall for a couple of months in 1662. But then the burghers decided that no, it was just too rough and tough. They didn't want their hero, Claudius Civilis, shown in this way. So they told him to take it down and take it away. Now that is the most terrible thing for any artist to The other artists, Janet Evans had been a student of Rembrandt. They'd all been students of Rembrandt. They were all accepted. But Rembrandt was told to go and take it away. Which he did. And he vandalised his great picture by just cutting the middle out of it. He had to sort of try and say what he could. And the bit that's in the Stockholm Museum is big. It's a, probably almost as big as one of the panels, but it's just the middle of this great painting. We don't know what happened to it. That's probably what got lost out. But that sort of drama and tragedy of, the, of an artist's life really got to me, especially because of Rembrandt that I, and I could see the portrait of him as a young man doing his porpoise rolling. Then the other portrait in the National Gallery was painted in the year of his death, 1669. 
And uh, in between, in Kenwood House, there is yet another self-portrait that was painted in the year of the Town Hall debacle, 1662. And I thought, well, what a wonderful thing to try and look at these three stages of this great artist, the young, the confident, the whole world's lying at his feet, he's know exactly where he's going. Then the painting in the Kenwood house, where he had been just humiliated, publicly humiliated, told to take his picture away. And he started off painting this self-portrait. You can just see down the edge of the picture here, the canvas, he would have been painting it, but he's thought no, and he turns around and he faces his audience. He's got his palette in his hand and his paint rag. In his hand, the paint rag's just been painted like this. It's very rough. And it's the most marvellous statement of artistic integrity. He's saying, this is who I am. This is how I paint. And this is how I will continue to paint. And it was a sort of like a statement, I think, of an artist at the height of his powers. And then when he painted the self-portraits in the National Gallery, which is the year of his death in 1669, he's 63 years old. And some of that bravado has gone. That sort of feeling, you know, of the, of the Kenwood House painting. He's looking out of the picture at you and he's got a, a bemused, I, I remember writing in the, my book when I did the copy, what was that all about? You know, that was the look on his face, you know. He must have known he was near his end. And he thought, well, what was that all about? All of that success, all of that drama and uh, disappointment, and yet, here I am at the end of my life. And it's the most marvellous three stages of an artist's life. And that's what I wanted to fix in my memory. Because I had that funny experience with the Rembrandt, it wasn't a Rembrandt, in the National Gallery of Victoria. But I really, really wanted to look at these paintings, these three paintings, in absolute detail. And I could, I could draw it now. See, the thing about drawing, Rowena is absolutely right. It is to do with making a diagram. Because as you draw, you sort of lose yourself. It's, I cannot draw from a reproduction. I think Jean mentioned that. It's not, not possible. I can't draw at all. I've got to be emotionally caught up with a picture as an object. And the National Gallery gave me the most marvellous present they could give to anybody at all. This is in the 2006 trip. They gave me access to the gallery after hours, after five o'clock when everybody left. Just one security guard would go wherever I wanted to go and I could sit for as long as I wanted to sit, not worrying about blocking people's vision. And I could go into that almost hypnotic trance that you need to go into 
to lose yourself in the picture, to try and see it through their eyes. So there's nothing interpretive about it. There's nothing artistic about it. It's purely trying to subsume myself into the artist and present it exactly as he or she, well, there weren't any she's in this case, but as he um, presented it to the world. I'm not trying to be interpretable, have an opinion about it or anything like that. I just want to understand it as he understood it. And uh, that was the most marvellous experience for me. I remember I was drawing the Manet downstairs in the um, ground floor of the Sainsbury Ring. And David Jaffe, who was um, at the National Gallery when I was there, he was one of the curators, He's now the senior curator of the National Gallery. He may have been the one. I don't know who gave me this wonderful gift of access to the gallery after hours. It may have been David Jaffe. And I, said, I remember saying to the guy, I said, oh, I'm terribly sorry to do this to you. He said, are you joking? He said, I'm getting over time. There's water there. There's water there. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. So, uh, Things on the floor, right? That's right. Yeah. It's one trouble with one eye, you've got no sense of space. You can be pouring someone a glass of wine, wondering why your foot's getting wet. <laughs> anyway, David wandered down, and I was drawing the man, and I was totally and utterly hypnotized by, by this look. This alert look on this waitress's face. She'd um, Manet had evidently seen her at this cafe concert where they used to drink. And she asked him, he asked her if she'd come and pose for him in the studio because he, he, he wouldn't have painted it in the cafe, he would have painted it as a construction in the studio. And she said, Well, she'd come, but her gallant had to come with him. So he's there in his workman's smock smoking his pipe. And of course that suited Manet absolutely because the more the merrier he needed, you know, quite a few people in his to make his little tableau vivant. Because um, but there was something about that waitress's face because she's just about she's got two uh, big chunks of ale in her hand, lovely amber ale. And she's about to put one down and she looks around as if someone's called her. And that sort of alert look on her face, it's absolutely marvellous. And I was, I really was almost hypnotised. And fortunately, David came down just after I'd finished. If he'd come down five minutes earlier, it would have broken that contact. Because I was hardly aware that I was drawing. I was just absolutely lost in the image. And... Uh, he came down to see what, was, what I was doing, and I said, I didn't say to him, thank God you didn't come down ten minutes earlier. But uh, I thought that I sent up a little prayer of thanks, saying thank you for that, because um, it would have spoiled the drawing for me. I just couldn't have gone on. It would have broken it. I think, Rowena, you talked about a sort of a concentration, like a sort of almost like an electrical thing between you and the diagram, your head. It's, it's a very um, strange
strange thing. I think anyone can draw those drawings. I'm convinced you all could do that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you could. Because it's, it's not a sort of a, a creative or artistic thing. You, but you have got to be prepared to surrender absolutely to the image. You've got to surrender all of your preconceptions, your ideas and everything. And when you draw, you suddenly notice a certain like, a diagonal here, and you think, it, and that has been emphasised. You think, why the emphasis there? And then a little on in the drawing, you'll notice it's rhyming with another diagonal here. Now the eye doesn't normally pick that up. You wouldn't consciously pick it up. But it's like music, the rhythm in music, you know, your ear picks it up. And it becomes a, a whole thing as you listen to it. And so it does when you look at it. It becomes a whole thing. And uh, those are the sorts of experiences that you can't get at all unless you're standing in front of the picture. One of the other pictures that I really wanted to get to the bottom of, I didn't, it didn't work, was Velasquez Las Meninas. That, that, that's the most mysterious painting. It's extraordinary painting. The Maids of Honor, you, some of you will have seen it. It's a great big painting in the Prado. I've got a son living in Barcelona and um, we took the train, we got the morning train down, but we didn't get to Madrid from Barcelona till about nearly midday. But fortunately, Madrid's late, Opening hours worked for me, and it was 10 o'clock at night before the gallery closed. So I had a long time there. What I wanted to see with the Las Meninas was how, what was he doing? What was he painting? Because in the painting, if you remember, there's, there's this huge canvas down the right hand down the left hand side of the picture. He's standing behind the canvas and he's looking as if he's painting. To his left here is the little infanta that's coming with the maids of honour and the little dwarfs and there's uh, a little child midget who's poking a big dog with his toe. And the chamberlain of the palace is just about to walk through the door out there. There's a mirror on the back wall, and you can see in the mirror a portrait of Philip IV and Queen Mariana. And you think, well, perhaps he was painting a double portrait king and queen. But then you think, no, that canvas is far too big. It's a huge canvas. As it's at least twice, or nearly three times the height of Velasquez himself. What do I think he was painting? was when an artist paints a portrait, we're seeing what the artist saw. He sits someone down and he paints them. And so that's what we see. I think he was painting what you would see if, he, if you were sitting for Velasquez. It's a painting of a painter painting. You know, it's, I'm almost certain of it now, you know, because I couldn't work it out. 
Howard District Daily. I remember Kenneth Clark, my mum, you know, he was always got a lovely way with words. He said that he used to try and find out when the um, when the gully was closed, he'd try and creep up on it to try and find out just at what point did that pink satin ribbon turn into just a flip of pink paint. Because when you get up close, that's what it is. She's got, the little infanta's got black lace hair and black lace hair and slashed satin sleeves. But when you look up close, they're being painted in a completely, I was going to say impressionistic, well it is impressionistic, in a completely impressionistic way. Get back at the right distance, where photographs are always taken from, and it turns into Spanish lace and satin sleeves, and but it's really is a terrifically loosely painted thing. And you try and find out where where is the spot where this happened. And there are all sorts of theories. Some of them are quite mad. Someone I've read some of this said that he had very long brushes. <laughs> <laughs> what he's trying to paint is how the human optic nerve conveys messages to the brain and how the brain interprets what the optic nerve sees. So I wondered if you if you're brought if you're born in in, in the centre of say the Belgian Congo, you know, and you'd never seen Spanish lakes. What would you see? Would you see Spanish lakes? Mm -hmm. 